You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, well, good to see everybody here tonight. Welcome to our our last session in the Beatitudes, our last session for the summer. And we've done really well, I have to say, because... We've had quite the beautiful early spring, and the fact that you kept coming out despite this beautiful weather warms my heart, but I know that I'm pushing it uh, by extending this too much longer, so we will take a break after tonight, but uh, we are going to uh, look at the last beatitude. Now, I know, I know at this stage you pretty much have the Beatitudes memorized. I know that. Um, But just just to confirm this, um, I'm going to read the first part, and you're going to answer the second part without looking at your Bible, Sebastian. All right? Here we go. Are you ready? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well done. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn. Comfort. Well done. Uh, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yeah, or satisfied or filled. Yeah. Blessed are the merciful. Good. Blessed are the pure in heart. Still my favorite beatitude, though. Blessed are the peacemakers. Yeah, okay. That's a tough one. Yeah, blessed are the peacemakers. You think it'd be for they shall bring peace. Yeah, be nice, but blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God or children of God. Yes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. That's right. We've come full circle. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life that you bring. Uh, Thank you for transforming us more and more into your image, that we be conformed more and more into your likeness. We pray, Lord, after tonight, as we look at this last beatitude, that we would not take our notes and file them away and say, well, that's that's over. Uh, but we would continue to live in the life that you're inviting us into. So we commit tonight to you. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So around your tables, just for a moment, I want you to say, talk uh, into your group, and you guys can talk online. Um Which beatitude has spoken to you the most and why? So which beatitude has spoken to you the most and why? And some of you would be like, I only heard two sessions. So (laughs) I'll be with this one or this. Uh, That's okay. So which which beatitude has spoken to you the most and why? Okay, just give you a couple minutes to talk about that. Okay, so how many of you like the first one the best? Put up your hand. First and second, yeah. How many of you like, it'd be interesting, how many of you like blessed are the meek? Oh, okay, yeah. 
I mean, obviously we like them all. It's not like, well, I hate this one. Yeah, that's yeah. Blessed are those who mourn. That's a good one. Yeah. So what we're going to do tonight, we're just going to do a couple things as we look at this. Um, this is a message. Uh, this is a the beatitude that I preached on uh, two days ago. Uh, we're going to make some observations about this final beatitude. <laughs> and then we're going to look at uh, some implications of this beatitude. And then we're going to look at how this beatitude has played out over history. And then I'm going to leave you with some concluding thoughts on this beatitude. Okay. So first, we're going to make some observations. I do think all the Beatitudes connect to each other. And we, dealt, we talked about this on Sunday, but how this Beatitude follows so logically from the one before it. Blessed are the peacemakers. Because if you're a peacemaker, if you try to make peace, you try to break up a fight, if you try to, you know, try, you know, even online, if you try to be that, that guy or that girl that, that tries to bring peace online, it's not usually going to go that well. And so when you are a peacemaker, um, very likely you're going to be standing in no man's land and the two sides that were fighting against each other will now start shooting at you. That's the hard part. So it does follow quite well. Secondly, um, this Beatitude is different. In fact, if you read some commentaries on the Beatitudes, some might even argue that there are nine Beatitudes, not eight. And they put the uh, verses um, 11 and 12 as a separate Beatitude. I don't think that makes sense. I think people like nine because it's three, three, three. But it seems to me as uh, as a um, uh, as a uh, an elaboration or extrapolation of the eighth beatitude but it does it is longer right and um verse 11 and verse 12 expand the meaning of verse 10 and there is a shift that takes place and and i know you've, you've seen this it's it, it shifts from they shall blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth it shifts from they shall to you it comes right at you right? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you uh, falsely on my account. The other thing is that all the other Beatitudes are quite positive. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God, right? It's all good. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. This is a beatitude that describes what happens to you when you live out Jesus's kingdom purposes. And finally, Jesus is involved in this beatitude. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So Jesus brings himself into this beatitude. You are blessed when people hate you. It's a very strange beatitude, I think. I think it's a, 
one of the strangest ones. It's probably the strangest one. The other thing to, to observe about this beatitude is that, and we've seen this for every single one, this is not dealing with natural qualities. So this is not dealing with people who have personalities that just tick everybody off, and so therefore they're persecuted. <laughs> we all know those people, right? Who just have personalities that are so annoying that everybody kind of persecutes them, not because they're doing anything right, but they're just kind of being offensive. You know people like that? Don't, don't point at them if they're here. So what is this beatitude saying? Well, what does it say? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. Righteousness, if you remember when we talked about this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness is not some external code of cleaning yourself up to look holier than thou. That's not what righteousness is. Righteousness is right relatedness. It's a relational term. And it's talking about being in right relatedness with the one who matters, with, with God the Father through Jesus Christ. And so what this is saying is that you and I are made righteous. For righteousness sake, we are righteous when we are in sync with the source of righteousness, which is Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in his life, by being righteous, by speaking righteousness and, and um, doing righteousness, uh, what happens to Jesus? Well, he's persecuted. And so when you are in right relatedness with Jesus, you will experience what he experienced. And, and Jesus warns us of this. And this is one of those things that as Christians, we seldom think about. We don't talk about very much. Um, but he, Jesus, he, he says, he goes, <laughs> I mean, it can't get any clearer than this. If the world hates you, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. Well, that's what Jesus says. If you were of the world, and the world would love you as its own, but you're not of the world. But I chose you out of this world. So the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus also says, in this world, you will have what? Trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. If you read the New Testament, every letter, you're going to find Paul, you're going to find Peter just saying, you know, rejoice when you're suffering. Rejoice in your suffering. When you're suffering, when you suffer, this is how you suffer. The assumption is, that if you align your life with Jesus, you will suffer. And it always boggles my mind. And I, I guess I, I shouldn't say it. I, I'm going to sound harsh because I know I, I fall into this myself too. But we've had so many warnings in scripture that if we are aligned to Jesus, it's not necessarily going to go smoothly. But still I see Christians as like when stuff goes bad, it's like, Huh, how, you know, why, why, God, why is this happening? Well, you get lots of warning. It's a theme throughout scripture that if you align your life with, if you truly walk with Jesus and represent Jesus in what you say and what you do, 
it's not going to be easy. The Christian life is not easy. I always tell that. And, and, and it's always dangerous because, you, you know, you often hear people when they evangelize, is your life messed up? Is your life not going the way you should go? Turn to Jesus and everything's going to be great. Well, yes, that's true in a very deep way. Because when we're aligned to Jesus, we experience life, the abundant life. We experience joy. But we also experience challenges. I met a guy um, this week. In fact, I'm just going to pause the uh, recording because I'll tell you about it. But I just don't want it to be on the recording. (laughs) But the theme of the Bible is this, is that um, if you follow Jesus, it's, it's not easy. Now, again, most people around the global south, they're like, yeah, <laughs> we've known this forever. I mean, if you're a Christian living in Xinjiang in China, you're like, of course, it's just really difficult. And it's getting more and more difficult to be a Christian in China. So it leads to the question, why? Why are those who are in sync with Jesus persecuted? Well, I think it really does come down to the person of Jesus. There's something about Jesus that the world, the world really struggles with. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says these words. In chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Interesting. I I won't go into a a sermon here, but um, it's an interesting image that Paul gives. Paul says, but thanks be to God. Who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession. What is a triumphal procession? Does anybody know? It's words that we read all the time. What, What is that? What is a triumphal procession? Does anybody know? like a parade but what kind of parade a a, a victory parade yeah so but remember this is written in the first century so what kind of parade do you think it was it's a Rome. it's actually called a roman triumph and it's when a general wins a great battle the general comes back and there's a big parade now in the parade you see different things you find priests um, spreading incense you find uh, horns being blasted and then you find you know the um, the general on his on his chariot being pulled and usually somebody or a slave holding a laurel wreath or a, a thing of victory over the uh, the general's head as an image of victory but then what else do you see on the uh, chariot you know tied to the back of the chariot are the defeated people, those that the general has defeated. And they're chained to the back of the chariot and they're forced to carry their weapons, broken shards of their of their swords or whatnot. And I've read this passage many times and, and, and many commentators point out, where does Paul see himself? Yeah. And in his own brokenness, in his own broken weapons, it gives so much more glory to the one driving the chariot, which is 
you know, the, the picture of Jesus in this triumph. And then Paul uses this language of, 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 the, of the, the victory and the smell of victory. And he talks about this. He says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. And I think that's what Jesus does, is he brings um, an aroma of life or an aroma of death. And that's why I think the scribes and the Pharisees, they struggled with Jesus. If Jesus was simply one good teacher saying, hey, I'll show you the truth. I will point you to the way. They'd be like, hey, Jesus, join us. Come and hang out with us. You know, because we're all like good teachers, right? But Jesus wasn't, he didn't point people to the truth. What did he say? I am the truth. He didn't say this is the way to go. He's not like Lao Tzu, like a uh, you know, Chinese philosopher. This is the Tao. This is the way to go. He's, he's, he's saying, no, I am the Tao. I am the way. And if Jesus just blended, then that would be one thing. But Jesus is doesn't blend. He's the incarnate son of God. Dies a death that we should have died, but defeats death through his resurrection. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when we hear this, we, we feel twitchy. I felt twitchy. I felt twitchy whenever somebody told me about Jesus. I was okay. Like, I study. Like, in my background is I studied philosophy. I was into martial arts. So I got into kind of Eastern philosophy. I studied Lao Tzu. I studied Sun Tzu. I studied all these guys. And, and, um, and I, I thought it was all cool. But whenever somebody talked to me about Jesus... I felt angry. I felt uncomfortable and I felt angry. And what happened is when, when I met somebody who was a Christian or somebody told me about Jesus, what I felt was an exposure of who I was. My heart was exposed and all my facade and all my, what I thought was cool and all that, it all crumbled away. And I saw me for who I was. And my guess is that some of you here have had that same experience when you came to faith in Jesus. Something about Jesus is, is like a mirror <laughs> that exposes all the stuff in your heart. Um, have you ever met somebody like that? Maybe at one point in your life where you met them and, they, and you sensed Jesus in them, but it made you uncomfortable? Yeah, great. Many years ago, I used to that I'd be in a club. And the Salvation Army officer would come in uh, taking chain and you know tracks. And I watch him and he would be repulsive because I and I was raised out I knew better, but it was bringing my attention Yeah. So Rick was just describing being in a bar and a Salvation Army guy coming in and raising money or, or um handing out tracks and different things. And 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 even though you had Catholic background, it's sort of like yeah, what are you doing here? Yeah. See, a lot of us, when we when we encounter Jesus, the problem is, is it's hard to encounter Jesus as he truly is and not change. Because if we really got who Jesus was, it's we're, we're gonna we're gonna change. And that's why I, I've I said on Sunday, everybody's okay with the idea of God. I think even in our secular culture if you say hey i believe in god most people would be like well good for you 
I'm so glad. I think it's good that you believe in something beyond, you know, and there, who knows, there's something, it could be karma, it could be my star, it could be my angel. To you, it's God. That's awesome. People are okay with God. But when you say, I believe in Jesus, the incarnate son of God, he was the way, the truth, and the life, and your life will only work insofar as you're connected to the one who created you, you live, you breathe, you have your being because of him, and he demands your life. People trip over that. And that's why Jesus is called the what? The scandalon. The word scandal. Scandalous. The word scandalon is the word stumbling block. It's a stumbling block. And Jesus says, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. And when we align our lives with Jesus, we become peculiar people. Now, again, I've said this, and I talk to people um, who, you know, they know this because they, they live in countries or they, they've, uh, they've escaped from countries where to be a Christian will land you in a lot of trouble. And it's interesting because in the early church, you had Christians and they always got into trouble. You had little kind of cult groups that kind of said we like Jesus, but they weren't Christians. They're a group called Gnostics and different groups. They never got in any trouble because they, they were no threat. But Christians always got into trouble. Wherever you find genuine faith, you'll find opposition. And sometimes the opposition comes from so-called Christians themselves. They ever tell you, I, I talked to this one fellow. Um, he's a, um, yeah, he's a, uh, he's a pastor, um, and he's a pastor in Canada and his denomination, uh, went kind of off the rails and he says he, he kept holding to the truth of Jesus and he got in a lot of trouble from his own denomination. In fact, he, the, the whole denomination split, they took his building, they did everything from him. This guy ended up going and he was at a meeting with some African bishops and uh, the African bishops, um, I think I shared this before. One of the bishops said to uh, my friend, this guy, and he says, oh, he goes, I'm so sorry you went through what you went through in Canada. And my friend knew this African bishop had lost his family. His family was killed by uh, Boko Haram in Nigeria, um, a radical Muslim group. His family was killed. And my friend's like, you feel sorry for me? Why are you feeling sorry for me? Look what you've lost. And the guy says, yeah. He goes, we know. We expected this from, our, from, from the enemy. He goes, you experienced persecution from ostensibly your own people, from, from, from the church. But persecution runs deep in the history. Now, wherever you find persecution, you do tend to find the growth of the church, don't you? Not always, but generally you do. The two fastest growing, the two areas where Christianity is growing the fastest, two countries, which countries are they? China and Iran. Yeah, very good. Wow, you guys are all over. Yeah, those are the two countries. And Iran is probably the, the, the fastest growing. Well, China's going pretty fast too. Um, a guy named Tertullian says the blood of the martyrs is the seed. 
the seat of the church. And I think that from the time of Jesus right up to even this past week, those who are in sync with Jesus and his way will experience trouble. And so what I thought I would do, because I know that all of you deep down love church history, right? Because who doesn't love church history? <laughs> right? All my friends online, right? You all like, oh, yeah, you're turning off your screens. Don't be turning off. <laughs> um, I mean, I've walked through through this before, but uh, I'm going to just kind of give you just just a picture, just a snapshot of um, of how this has played out in different times in, in, in history. Right from the very beginning of the church. And if you read the New Testament, you get early, early indications that something is going wrong. Now, by the time when you're reading the New Testament, the church is starting to come under pressure from Rome. Just starting to. Not in a serious, serious way, but a starting to. By the time you get to the book of Revelation, it's very different. You read 1 Peter and you read Revelation, they're different. And they're, they're written at different time periods. 1 Peter is probably um, around in the 60s AD and Revelation is probably in the 90s AD. Uh, in those 30 years, things begin to change. But where the uh, church starts to really feel it is under which emperor? Oh, you see it, yeah, Nero. Yeah, uh, Nero. Um, Nero, he's one of the first guys to really carry out pretty intense persecution of the church. Um, and you have to think about it. There's a fire that apparently Nero started in Rome. Um, caused so much damage in Rome, loss of loss of life and property. And Nero very conveniently said, "Hey, <laughs> I heard it was, I heard it was the Christians who started this fire." Now that's a kind of a well-known story. If if you know a little bit of church history, you know that about Nero. But yeah, you have to just pause for a moment. Why is it that one Nero's mind went right to the Christians, and two, why did everybody buy it? Um, people, they had an issue with, 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 with the Christian population. And they were hated because of Jesus. And this, this, carry, this begins um, some pretty intense persecution. Under Nero, it's thought that uh, both Paul and Peter were killed. Paul was beheaded. Peter was, how did Peter die? Yeah, crucified upside down. So the story goes. Because he didn't want to be crucified right side up because it would be too much like his master. So he says, do it upside down. And this begins quite a bit of, of persecution. Once you get to the fellow named Domitian, which is at the end of the first century, that is where, that's the context when you read the book of Revelation. And so when you see references to the beast, and when you see references uh, to Babylon, it's, it's referring to Rome, and it's referring often to, to Domitian. Because Domitian is one of those guys who, who wanted people to see him as Lord and God. And so if you were to enter into a shopping center to, to buy food, you had to take a pinch of incense and say the words Kaiser at Curious, Caesar is Lord. Domitian is Lord. And um, if you didn't, you couldn't participate. 
I tell you, I had a friend of mine in, uh, in, in China, a dear friend of mine. He's been my friend for uh, 33 years. And uh, he was telling me that um, when, when, when uh, Shanghai was locked down for COVID, he, uh, he was quarantined for, uh, I think, 47 days or 54 days. And every day, he had to take a PCR test. And then he get the PCR test, and then he had to submit the results. Somehow he had to submit it. Only when the results were submitted and it showed up negative, did he get, did his phone go from red to green? And only when it's green could he go into a shopping center, for example, and buy food. Could he go on a bus? Could he go on a subway? So long as it's red, he could not leave his house. He couldn't do anything. Anyhow, I, th I thought that's got nothing to do with Christianity, but I thought about this idea of, of needing to take a pinch of incense just to buy food. Uh, this one needed, to, nowadays, you need to get uh, the, the green light on your phone. This is, uh, Domitian is a guy that, um, you know, the Christians had a hard time because the, for the Christians, there's only one Lord, and that's Jesus. And so a lot of Christians were rounded up and their leaders were killed. Uh, this carried on. Um, we uh, come across, um, it's a little out of order in your notes, I realize. Um, there's this guy, and I've told you the story before about this uh, governor, a guy named Pliny, Pliny the Younger. Um, he's writing a letter to the emperor. The emperor at the time is a guy named Trajan, and he describes these Christians. And I have a description here for you. It's kind of interesting. He says, that they were wont on a stated day to meet together. He's describing these Christians. They met together before it was light to sing a hymn to Christ as to a God. I love that because that's an early evidence. Like this is, um, this is uh, first century, late first century, early second century. You have a Roman leader acknowledging that these Christians are looking at Jesus as God. So whenever you hear people say, well, nobody ever believed that Jesus was God. That was that came, you know, hundreds of years later. Everybody just saw him as a good leader. No, here you have an enemy saying, hey, these Christians, they think Jesus is God. Clear evidence outside of scripture. Um, anyhow, he describes them. And then um, Pliny the Younger uh, has an issue with them. And he ends up arresting a lot of them and killing them unless they repented, unless they recanted their faith. And this persecution carries on um, until you come to the death of a guy named Polycarp. How many of you have heard of Polycarp? A couple, a couple of you? You guys know who Polycarp is? Yeah, I see a couple of hands. Yeah. Yeah, Polycarp is... Uh, I always like the name Polycarp. It reminds me of a Pokemon. Um, sorry. <laughs> it's not a Pokemon, um, but he, um, what makes Polycarp so interesting, and I talked about this a couple years ago, um, what makes Polycarp so interesting is that he's the last connection to the New Testament, because Polycarp was a student of John, he was a <laughs> disciple of John, and so when Polycarp died, that was the last connection to the, to the New Testament disciples. 
And there's a story of Polycarp. Uh, there's actually a, a, an eyewitness account of his death. Uh, he dies in 160 AD. And this is what happened. Polycarp was brought into a stadium. And God spoke to him. He said, be strong and show yourself a man, Polycarp. Um, when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was indeed Polycarp. When he admitted that he was, the proconsul then tried to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, quote, have respect to your old age. Swear by the genius of Caesar. Repent and shout away with the atheists. Isn't that interesting? Christianity, Christians were accused of being what? Atheists. Isn't that interesting? Because they didn't worship the Roman gods. He says, so I want you to stand up and say, down with the atheist, meaning down with, with, with Christianity. So then Polycarp turned to look at them with a stern appearance um, and waving his hands. He raised his eyes to heaven and he cried out. He says, away with the atheists. But the proconsul continued to press him. And he says, swear and revile Christ and I will set you free. And Polycarp answered him. I love this. I have served him for 86 years. I've served Jesus for 86 years. And never has he done me any injury. So how could I possibly blaspheme my king and my savior? And the proconsul gets mad. He says, swear by the genius of Caesar. And then Polycarp looks at him. He goes, look. He goes, let me tell you very plainly who I am. I am a Christian. <laughs> then he says, this is kind of cheeky. He says, and if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, fix an appointment and I will tell them about, I'll tell you about them. <laughs> this is while he's under arrest. And the story goes that he's, he's, um, he's eventually uh, burned at the stake and killed. Persecution carries on under Marcus Aurelius. Um, he's kind of known as a philosopher emperor, but he certainly had no time for Christians. Um, he carries on into the 200s, um, where Christianity became illegal and was enforced by uh, police. And many people were martyred. You guys know the story. I'm not going to repeat it, but if you don't know the story, do look it up. Uh, I know I've, I've walked through the story a number of times is the story of um, I mentioned on the weekend, perpetua and felicity. And uh, these two women who were, who were killed for their faith and It's powerful because it's one of the only times in, in antiquity that you find writing done by a woman describing what was going to happen to her. So they're both killed. And then by the time you get to the, uh, to around 250 AD, there is a um, statewide ban on Christianity. And that is where you needed to get a certificate of sacrifice in order to even participate in society. You had to have a certificate. Um, and the certificate, um, I even have a certificate, uh, not a real one, but I have it written down here. Uh, this is from 250 AD. This is under the emperor, a guy named Decius. And they have these certificates, which basically said, look, I've, I've worshipped the Roman gods. I'm clear. 
So allow me to be present. So anytime you want to go shopping, you had to show the certificate. Anytime you want to participate in society, you show the certificate. And so there's one that uh, that says this. It goes to the commissioner of sacrifice on the village of Alexander's Island from Aurelius Diogenes. So that's the guy's name. The son of Sabatis, the village of Alexander's Island, age 72 years old, scar on his right eyebrow. Which I like that. It's just, just to make sure this is the guy with the scar. And then he says, I, I, I swear, I have always sacrificed regularly to the gods. And now in your presence, in accordance with this edict, I've done sacrifice. I've poured drink offerings. I've tasted the sacrifices. I request you to certify the same. And then somebody else writes, I certify that I saw him sacrificing uh, done in the first year of the emperor, Decius, on the month of blah, 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 blah. And so you needed one of those. So can you imagine, like, you're going to the mall? You needed to show the certificate. Well, I mean, <laughs> I suppose we can. Can you imagine having to have something to show in order to eat at a restaurant? Sorry. Too soon? Still too soon. Okay. <laughs> well, the last, the last persecution was probably the worst one. That was the guy, Diocletian. And Diocletian actually tries to stamp out Christianity. Christ, Christians were hunted down, arrested, killed. And um, it's interesting, but at that time it was too late. Because the church had grown so much that they could not stamp it out. Uh, and, and, and the story goes is that axes were grown dull because so many Christians were killed. Uh, but by that time, over 10% of the population had, be, had, had converted to Christianity, which is quite an amazing story. But I want to I give you this one, one more story. And that is the story of um, Telemachus. How many of you know who Telemachus is? Do you know this story? Anybody know this story? Yeah, I can see Lori. So this takes place in the 300s, and there's still gladi um, um, gladiatorial games that are going on, gladiator games. Um, in the past, a lot of Christians have been taken to the arenas and have been slaughtered in gladiator battles. Uh, often they were dragged, guys like Ignatius of um, Antioch were dragged to uh, the arena and they were torn apart by wild animals. Wild beasts such as lions, tigers, leopards, and bears were kept in pits until they were crazed with hunger. Then they were released upon Christians, boys and girls, old men and matrons, it mattered not. All were made to feel the pain. Sometimes Christians were soaked in oil and lit on fire as if they were living torches. Men and women were torn with iron hooks, grilled on iron, sawed into two and placed into boiling pots of oil. Other things too horrible even to speak of or practice upon, uh, many of them, uh, even including children. And even in the midst of this, you have Christians continuing to sing, even on the blood-soaked floor of the Colosseum. One day, though, at the height of the gladiatorial games, during a celebration of the Roman victory over the Goths, late um, fourth century, a lone figure interrupted the proceedings. Without warning, a rough and weather-beaten man jumped over the wall and into the arena. Shouts of excitement over the combat gave way to profound silence. All eyes turned 
from the gladiators to look at this lone figure. He was covered with a mantle, and he had come all the way from Asia to Rome. He was a Christian. He had heard about these barbaric entertainments, and by the grace of God, he had intended to stop them. He had shoved his way to the edge of the arena and jumped into the midst where every eye could see him. He advanced between two gladiators who were engaged in mortal combat. Interposing himself between the combatants, he faced the crowds. Fearlessly, the hero raised his voice. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, I command these wicked games to cease. Do not requite God's mercy by the shedding of innocent blood. Now, a shout of defiance met the, the voice of this guy. Pieces of fruit, stones, daggers, and other missiles were hurled down from the stands. One of the gladiators, expecting the applause of the crowd, stepped forward and rammed his battle axe into the skull of the man who had dared interfere with Rome's favorite entertainment. As the hero sunk lifeless to the ground, the angry cries of the crowd died away into a profound silence in the arena. As the life's blood of this new martyr joined the blood of the thousands who had bled before him, the crowd suddenly faced a courage that was greater than the strongest gladiator. The work of this Christian was accomplished, and his name was Telemachus. And from the hour of his martyrdom, the gladiator games ceased. Is that an interesting story? Now, we could keep going. We could keep going and we could tell, uh, tell stories of guys like Jan Hus and, and Bohemia and Peter Waldo. We could talk about Christians um, who experienced incredible um, persecution under Stalin. I read a stat on, on, on the weekend that um, if you look at the, all the Christians who were killed, in uh, the 20th century, works out to be an average of 454,000 a year. Even this past year, you know, 6,000 people have died, more than 6,000 arrested, 4,000 kidnapped, 5,000 churches destroyed. And you think, wow, okay. And then last week, Five Christians were, were injured by an unidentified gunman entering uh, a Coptic Orthodox church in Sudan. And uh, the wounded in the attack were the pastor and his son. During the attack, the assailants reportedly stormed the church building, calling, calling the, those present infidels or sons of dogs and ordered Christians to convert to Islam. They demanded money and they proceeded to loot and trash the building. Last week, six Libyans may face the death penalty for converting to Christianity and encouraging others to do the same. They were charged under Article 207 of Libya's Penal Code, which punishes any attempt to spread views that aim to alter the fundamental constitutional principles or fundamental structures of social order. So these six Libyans face the death penalty. This is just last week. Um, Christianity is the world's most persecuted religion, confirms this new report. And it has a list of all the countries. The number one country that persecutes Christians is which country? 
It used to be North Korea. It's now Afghanistan. Number two is North Korea. Yeah, Afghanistan took over uh, first place. Number two is North Korea. Number three, Somalia. Number four, Libya. Uh, number five, Eritrea. Number six is Nigeria, which there's a lot of Christians there. Um, yeah, and this, the list goes on. So why did and why do people hate Christians or hate Jesus so much and his followers? Well, I think a couple of reasons, a number of reasons. One, I think it's the ex exclusivity of Jesus. People are okay with Jesus and Jesus and something else. But when you say Jesus is the way, what Daryl Johnson calls a scandal of particularity, um, this, this makes people uncomfortable. So I'm going to give you just a couple moments just to chat because I've been laying out a couple stats and things like that. Just give you a few moments among yourselves. And I want you to answer this question. How comfortable are you in making the claim that Jesus is the way? And how tolerant is our society of such a claim and why? You know, just chat about your own, around your own table. How comfortable are you saying this, proclaiming this? And then how is our society, how... Why, how is society towards this claim and why do you think it is the way it is? Okay, just give you a couple of minutes. Okay, let's, uh, let's gather back in. Good conversation. I think um, I was just, uh, just saying to the group uh, and um, to, to a couple of you that one of the things that we do see happening and it's kind of exciting because you read the news and everything is like, oh, Christians, this extreme Christians, Christians are hateful Christians, this, you know, the churches are dying. But the reality is that, and I've talked to pastors across the board around the lower mainland, and they're all experiencing the same thing, that there's almost unprecedented growth in the churches. And then I just read an article yesterday on the growth of the church in, are you ready? Europe, of all places. And so there's something going on. And so whenever there's persecution and whenever there's a lot of hostility, typically, not always, but typically, you see tremendous periods of growth for the church. Um, it doesn't always happen, but it often happens. And so I think there's, um, <laughs> we can be, Hopeful in the sense that I think God is doing something to uh, with his churches. He's reviving his churches. I, I, I think there's something happening. And yet at the same time is that whenever there's revival, <laughs> there's, there's counterfeit, there's persecution, there's all sorts of revivals are messy. I did my doctorate on revivals. And one thing I learned about revivals is that they are messy. They're amazing, but they are messy. And so, uh, but it's something that um, as Christians, I think we could continue to pray for. Um, and I think a lot of the uh, growth that we're seeing in the churches is that you have a lot of new Canadians. And I love the fact that we have so many new Canadians because so many of the new Canadians are Christians and they're hardened Christians. They know, they know what it's like to be faithful to Jesus in difficult times. And we need 
you know, we need to toughen up. And so, and so, uh, so I, th- I think, you know, I'm quite optimistic, but I do think, you know, Jesus's uh, warning is very clear. In this world, you and I will have trouble. I know that in, in historically, one of the biggest challenges, one of the doctrines that um, really um, leaders were not keen about is the, is, the, is, the, is the hope of resurrection. In China, if you're in a, an official church, if you're in a three selves church, you can preach some things about Jesus, but you cannot linger on the resurrection and certainly not on his return, on, on Jesus's return. Because Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' return have huge political implications. Because resurrection means that the worst a tyrant could ever do to you, i.e. kill you, ain't going to do the trick. (laughs) Because of the resurrection, you know that you will be resurrected with Jesus. The other thing is because Jesus is going to come back one day, it means all these tyrants they will not get away with this, that there is judgment and they will have to stand before him and every knee will bow. And so those are very strongly political doctrines, but they're true. And I think the particularity of, uh, of Christianity, our, our faith is rooted not in some abstract ideas, not in some universal principles of of, of perfection or anything like that. We're not Aristotelians. We're not, um, we're not Platonists, but we are Christians. And, and Christianity means that we, our focus is on a person and an event that takes place in the specifics of history. That God is a God who operates in the raw material of history. It's messy, which is okay, because he can operate in the messiness of my life. God's not an abstract perfect you know like numbers or whatever he's, he's a god who gets into the mess of this world and the other thing about um god he's a god who can uh, or that the reality of jesus is that um that god is personal we can pray to him in jesus name we can pray to god the father in jesus's name and we can pray to him personally and one of the biggest things that land Christians into trouble, but it's a tremendous picture of hope, is that because of Jesus, we live in a world with an open future. Now, let me just explain this. This is really important. In the ancient world, your station in life was fixed. So if you're a woman, you could only go up so high within society. If you're a slave, again, there would be limits in terms of your positions within society. In terms of who you were, slaves were property. They were not human beings. As women, you were deformed males. Uh, That's what the the Aristotle said. Um, And so when Socrates says this famous line, know thyself, he's not saying, hey, look inside yourself and figure out who you are. He's saying, know thyself, know your station in life and stay there because that's where you're going to be stuck for the rest of your life. Christianity says, no, every person's made in God's image. When Jesus rescues us, he transforms us and he sets us free. And so who knows what my life could look like? And so one, I mean, I've shared this before, but in one of the letters from Ignatius of Antioch, when he's heading to the arena to die, one of the letters is sent to a bishop, a guy named Onesimus, in a place called Ephesus. Does that name sound familiar? 
And there's thought that maybe, maybe it was the slave Onesimus from the book of Philemon is now a bishop in Ephesus. And so in the ancient world, the Christian world, what Jesus brought about was an open-ended future. And we live in a world where he's just like, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to do in a few years? I'd like to do this. I'd like to try this. This idea that we could do anything and we could get education and try different jobs and do different things, be upwardly mobile. Do this is a legacy of Jesus. And in, 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 um, in dictatorships or in um, um, oppressive governments, they do not want people moving around. They don't want people changing positions too much where Christianity opens that up in ways that would never seem possible. I mean, it was, it was a Christian worldview that led, led to the, uh, the whole abolitionist movement. Um, anyhow, we can go on in that. And God is a God who loves. He's the one who loves and everyone matters. So this last, this last beatitude, blessed are those who persecute you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. So how we respond to this final beatitude will reveal our picture of Jesus. If you think Jesus is a nice teacher who can maybe make your life slightly more interesting, you don't really get Jesus. Jesus is way bigger than we think. He's much, much bigger than we realize. He's the author of life. How we respond to this final beatitude will reveal what we believe about the Christian life. If you think being a Christian is just about being nice, you're missing the point. And, and the call of the Christian life, it's interesting. We are just talking about that. Um, the call of the Christian life is an interesting one because it is, as a Christian, we don't go looking for trouble. I know Christians sometimes just go looking for trouble. And, you know, they'll post things. It's like, what do you think of that? What do you, you know, got any comments? Um, I think what we see in the Bible is Christians, we're supposed to live peaceful lives. We're supposed to live at peace with one another. And yet we're also called to live faithful lives. And here's the rub. Living a peaceful life and living a faithful life, it may bump into each other at one point. Because to live faithful lives may stir things up. But you don't go looking for trouble. And as Christians, I often will say this. Um, you know, don't, don't be looking for trouble because you'll, there's a, you'll get enough trouble on its own. Right? You don't have to go looking for it. And how we respond to this last beatitude will reveal our deepest need. And what is our deepest need is to be transformed. We don't, this is not something we do on our own. This is a supernatural transformation. When we align our lives with Jesus, when we're gospelized, we receive the Holy Spirit and we're transformed. And so this beatitude brings us full circle in our story of the beatitudes. In the Beatitudes, Jesus lays out a vision for flourishing that turns the world upside down, or more correctly, it turns the world right side up. Hel Helmut Tilica once said, he says, anyone who enters into fellowship with Jesus must undergo a transvaluation of values. 
it's it's what what's on offer in the Beatitudes is a whole new way of seeing reality and a whole new way of living. Bonhoeffer saw this. He says, with every beatitude, the gulf is widened between the disciples and the people, and their call to come forth from the people becomes increasingly manifest. If you live in the beatitudes, you will step out from the crowd. And it's dangerous, but you're called to be a person. And um, as the, the old saying goes, is you'll know the truth and the truth will make you odd. Yeah, you'll be different. Yeah. And so what do we get with the Beatitudes? Well, when we refuse to march to the beat of the world, when we live in sync with Jesus, our hearts will begin to change. We'll recognize that man on our own, we don't got what it takes. We don't have what it takes on our own to be right with God. So we're poor in spirit. For ours is the kingdom of heaven. And from there, we begin to see our, our hearts in light of who Jesus is. And we mourn our sins. And we look at the world and we begin to mourn what's going on all around us. And so blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. From there, we don't use our force available in the world to force it to change. No, we, we enter into it with meekness, with true estimation of ourselves. And we exercise our gifts and our passions. And our appetites begin to change. We begin to hunger and thirst for right relatedness, right relatedness with God, with our neighbor, with the earth, and with ourselves. When we see the cross and the mercy of God, we think to ourselves, how can we not show mercy to others? We receive mercy and we give mercy. And our hearts, our desires not to be so divided, but the hearts to be aligned to Jesus, to be pure of heart, knowing that all of life is preparing us to see the face of God. And in the meantime, we become people of shalom, of wholeness, being peacemakers. But recognizing that in the end, we will be persecuted when we do this. So this is the Beatitudes. So I'll leave you with the words of John Stott. John Stott says, such a reversal of human values is basic to biblical religion. The ways of the God of scripture appear topsy-turvy to men, for God exalts the humble and abases the proud, calls the first last and the last first, ascribes greatness to the servant, sends the rich away empty-handed. And, uh, and one more page that I'm missing here. <laughs> ah, I'm missing my last page. Do you guys have it? <laughs> Do you have the rest of the quote? <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> And let me start. No. <laughs> the culture of this world and the counterculture of Christ are at loggerheads with each other. In brief, Jesus congratulates those whom the world most pities and calls the world's rejects blessed. That is so cool. What I like to do is uh, I like to leave us with this prayer. And it's a prayer um, that uh, Daryl Johnson has in his book on the Beatitudes. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it is with joy that we confess you as Savior and Lord. Indeed, there is no other Savior and Lord but you. We thank you for speaking your Beatitudes. 
for speaking the divine blessing upon us. We're humbled that you love us enough to give us your perspective on what it means to be human in our world. We're deeply humbled that you love us enough to speak your kingdom into our world. Lord, we acknowledge that we are indeed poor in spirit. May this always be our posture before you. We do mourn over the state of our world, especially it's in its rejection of you. We grieve that we are not all that you long for us to be. We're moved by the realization that you mourn with us and that your mourning will, sure, will soon turn into joy. We affirm that gentleness is the way. You want us to be in all our relationships. In you, we see that the gentle do, in fact, inherit the goodness of creation. Make us like you. Oh, how we hunger and thirst for you to put all things right. We give you thanks for all the ways you are doing this right now. But we long for the day when your great craving will be fulfilled in a fully righteous world. Lord, how can we adequately thank you for your mercy? You are mercy, holy mercy. Help us to drink of your mercy that we have the strength to extend mercy to all we encounter. Help us to hear in the brokenness around us the cry, someone have mercy on me. You know that we want to be pure in heart. We confess that we cannot make this happen in our lives. Only you, the pure one, can work such a miracle in our heart, in our souls. So please, dear friend of sinners, make it so. You know how much we want to see, to see you, to see the Father. And we know that one day we will. But grant that every day before that day, we can see what is seeable right now. Makers of shalom, oh, what dignity you bestow on us. Free us from all that gets in the way of cooperating with you in your great work in this world. Equip us with all the grace we need to be people of peace. We want to be known as the children of peacemaking God, of the peacemaking God in all the places we live and work. And Jesus, we know that as we seek to live in sync with you and your agenda in this age, we can find ourselves in trouble. We'd rather not it happen, but we do thank you for warning us and making it clear why it happens. Should we be persecuted on account of you, please so work in us that we could be like Stephen, who when he was unjustly stoned, followed your lead and prayed, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Oh, there is simply no one like you. To you be all glory, as with the Father and the Holy Spirit, you reign now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.